Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, host of this show and executive editor of Emergence Magazine, located on the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people in present-day Marin County. Each week, we feature interviews, stories, poetry, and author-narrated essays exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. At our Shifting Landscapes exhibition we held in London in December, we hosted a series of conversations with the exhibition's artists and emergence contributors, coming together in community to explore the great losses and transformations both engulfing our outer, physical world and unfolding in our inner landscapes and ways of being. In this conversation, I was joined by the writer and environmental justice activist and founder of Climate and Color, Joycelyn Longdon, award-winning Cambodian-American filmmaker, Kalyani Mom, and singer, song collector, and author, Sam Lee, to consider how we might rekindle awe and reciprocity by remembering ourselves as extensions of the changing earth. Good afternoon, everyone. So lovely to be here with you this afternoon. My name is Emmanuel Vaughn Lee. I'm the executive editor of Emergence Magazine and also the curator of this show. And I'm delighted to be in conversation this afternoon with some wonderful people, friends, who are going to talk about awe, wonder, and the seeds of reciprocity. There are several themes that we're exploring in this exhibition. The importance of bearing witness and realizing how we're very entangled with the biosphere, that essentially we are an extension of the ever-changing Earth. And if we make that realization, body, mind, and spirit, then the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we act is going to change. And there are two questions we ask on the uh, exhibition overview text as you come into the building. And one of them is, you know, what seeds of reciprocity might take root if we embody this understanding uh, and realize how entangled we are with this great earth that is our home. So we're not going to talk too much about loss and destruction this afternoon. We've talked a lot about loss and destruction. We've, as we need to, we need to talk about what is unfolding. We need to bear witness to what is unfolding. But we also need to give space for what can emerge from what opens inside of us when we allow ourselves to be present with what is going on all around us and let that love in all its forms. Ben Oker was just here prior to this session. He was speaking about love and not a glossy type of love, a multifaceted type of love that knows no bounds and that can break you open and spin you around and spit you out. And when that happens, something can shift inside of us and something new can emerge. So that's what we're going to speak about this afternoon, which I'm very excited to, to be in conversation with these incredible artists and activists, writers, singers, filmmakers, a very talented bunch. So I'd love to introduce them to you. To my left uh, is Joycelyn Longdon, who's an environmental justice activist and a PhD student in artificial intelligence for environmental risk. 
She's also the founder of Climate in Color, an online education platform and community dedicated to making climate science and environmental issues more accessible and diverse. And she's also working on a brilliant new book titled Rerooting, How We Overcome Monoculture Environmentalism, which is scheduled to be published next fall by Penguin Random House. So please keep your eyes out for that. To her left is my dear friend who I've known for over a decade now, Kalyani Mom, uh, whose work Lost World is exhibited downstairs. Some of you have, may have seen that by now. Kalyani is a Cambodian-American filmmaker whose award-winning work is focused on art and advocacy. Her debut documentary feature, River Changes Course, won the World Cinema Grand Jury Prize for Documentary at Sundance Film Festival and the Golden Gate Award for Best Feature Documentary at the San Francisco International Film Festival. Her other works include the documentary shorts Lost World, which is displayed downstairs, Fright for Orang Valley, Between Earth and Sky, and Cries of Our Ancestors. She's currently working on two new documentary films, Fire in the Bird's Nest and Taste of the Land. And to her left is good friend Sam Lee, who is the subject of a film which premiered here and has been screening all week, The Nightingale Song. Sam is a Mercury Prize-winning folk singer, a conservationist, a song collector, the author of The Nightingale, which is available downstairs, um, and has numerous acclaimed albums, including the latest one due out very soon, Song Dreaming, uh, which I would also ask you to keep an eye out for. He is a founding member of Music Declares Emergency and the Nest Collective, which brings people together to rekindle connections with nature, tradition, and community. Welcome, Sam. Welcome, Kalyani. Welcome, Joycelyn. So, thank you. Thank you. So I want to talk about work that connects to, to start our conversation. And each of your work explores connection with the earth, whether that be exploration of home and homeland, as you do in your work, Kalyani, Sam using art as activism, connecting people to the nightingales and land through shared song and community, or creating conversation around activism, purpose, and climate futures, Joycelyn. So I'm wondering if you could each talk a little bit about the importance of centering narratives of connection and community and kinship in the stories you tell and the work that you do and the spaces you open up for people, particularly in the context of the uncertain and changing times we find ourselves in. Um, thanks. Yeah, great question. Um, I think that what's interesting um, about kind of sitting in between two worlds, because I'm sitting kind of in the activist space and also in the academic world, um, and a lot of my research, so I work um, on conservation technology and how we can look at the way that we conserve environments, especially in the tropics, and move them away from a kind of colonial agenda to something that is based in community and based in connection and, and moving against this sort of separation of humans from the natural world in the solutions that we have to the environmental crisis. And I think that what I've learned from being in community um, in a place that's my heritage, I work in Ghana, and working across language, working across experience, working across hierarchies, again, across cultures, is that I think within the environmental movement we have community wrong. Um, and I think that 
you know, talking about this messy kind of love, not this kind of glossy love. And, and for me, that work in the forest of becoming very, very entangled with people, their tensions, the tensions of the forest, the tensions of the wildlife within the forest, the tensions of the technology in the forest, and understanding that community is beautiful only because it show, it, it's a mirror to show us all of our different ways of being. And I think that sometimes we like a kind of pure kind of environmentalism. We like a pure mor morality-based environmentalism. And I think what I've learned from being in the forest and being with people who live in the forest with each other, can't go anywhere because it's very remote. You have to be in community with the people and the beings around you. And so then it's more about being than doing. And I think that here or in the West, we think about environmentalism as something that we do and I've really started moving away from that and seeing how community is a way of being and how we are with each other and how we are in the world and I think if we moved to that we could complicate the question of what it means to do conservation or to do environmentalism um, and change fundamentally not just the external but the internal whilst we're doing that and I think um, that's something that I'm trying to practice and trying to communicate a lot more so I'll stop there. But. To be conservation and be <laughs> yeah. environmentalism. I think it's a very distinct difference. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I love the power to pass on. Um, I'm, well, I'm very pleased I didn't go first. And actually, I'm, I, the terror of going first. Thank you, Jocelyn, there. And I, and, and I was dwelling on that. Like, why is going first really hard? And it really helps in this situation to have somebody put a, an orientation point. Okay, so that's, yeah, to hear your perspective. And I, and I know that I have that same confrontation. Um, this is, I think this is going somewhere. Same confrontation when I arrive in the woods. That sense of overwhelm, oh my God. It's like standing in front of you all. It's a bit like standing in front of a forest I haven't been in for a little while or don't know. And it's like, how, where am I? Who are these beings? Um, what is that reciprocity between? What is that connection between us? Do they acknowledge me here? Do I acknowledge them? How do I acknowledge them? And that question of, of connectivity, which is um, problematic for me, and I live for many, many weeks of the year in the woods. Um, and that, uh, that for me is the, 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 the question of how, how do I, as a, both as an artist, but as a, just as a human doing the practice I do, and my practice is about being in the woods. I don't practice scales and instruments and things like that. Um, it is about listening and actually having that, that, that time just to, to drop in um, and, and start to hear the, the opinions of the trees and their, their intentions. I, and that for me is the starting point of how does one become a, a better listener? Um, how does one um, understand what the what the communication, what the what that kind of what is held within the silence of of the woods? That's for me one of my great teachers uh, and teachings and places of of learning, um, which I then have to calibrate as an artist living in London, as I do, as a musician, as a writer, as, a, as somebody who's creating act activities and activations where um, to broker, to be an agent for that introduction. Um, how does one facilitate that for people who are not in the forest, who are not face to face? Um, and how does art work as a place of distillation of the, the, both the concept and the essence 
and the wordless, the, the, the unspeakable, un, the vocabulary-free point of relationship with the natural world um, and what is held in a more vibrational and um, a more kind of uh, ethereal field that exists to acknowledge that. And the, the thing that I find fascinating about being here is that uh, you know we often talk about art as the as the sort of you know the great the great connector the great um, inspiration creator. Being in this building is like being in a like a seed bomb, uh, like one of those kind of packets of your wildflower meadows that you sprinkle it out there, and what will be is a you know in time will be a an extraordinary blossom of many different expressions held within that packet. And this is for me the example of the most important thing about how we create, everybody will, will come and have, an, have a reaction and an inspiration. And as an artist, you're never entirely sure of what it is you're putting out there and what the reaction will be and what people take away from it. You can be as didactic as you can. <laughs> Sometimes the less didactic, the more, uh, the more you leave it open to interpretation, which is the beauty of music and, and sound because it, it holds itself in so many different parts of people's bodies to, to, to hold space and to connect with the things that people are thinking about. And we're all thinking about these issues right now, particularly as COP is happening. And we're seeing headlines that are really pinpointing what the, the meadow flowers will be in time to come. Um, everybody, I think, is looking for a sense of kind of hope and inspiration as an artist. Um, for me, it's about creating worlds that um, that elicit um, potentiality and, and, a, and a way forward that is is beautiful and has love within it and has vibrancy and diversity, um, but also has humans in it in, in, in greater connection. So it's just a little musing, I guess. And I'm going to pass the mic on now. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Sam. And thank you, Joycelyn. Um, I'm so glad I'm last. <laughs> uh, just, I just enjoyed listening to both of you. Um, you reflect so much of what I, how I feel as well, you know, when I'm in the forest and amongst um, our kin, you know, we are in relationship. Everything around us is a mirror of ourselves, our internal self. And I think that's what I would like to speak about. Um, I think most of my career as a storyteller, story weaver, uh, filmmaker, whatever the, um, uh, the role is, um, I think from my education, I've learned to objectify. I've learned to look outside of myself for answers. I've learned to read books and look up to authority for answers. Um, I've learned to go to museums <laughs> and, and consume art and consume music, consume media for answers. Um, I've also learned to create media myself um, by um, objectifying the experiences of other people. And during the time that I've lived with families in Cambodia, um, who live with the land and in the forests, I've learned that this is not how to live. And actually, the way of life that is in communion with 
um, the kin around us is a way of life that is in connection. Um, and so my journey recently has been not to tell the stories of others, but actually to look within myself, to, to look at the story of my own family, my own people, my own ancestors, and ask what wisdom lies there. And my ancestors are not just humans, but non-humans as well. So I go to the mountains, I go to the forest, I go to the ocean, and I not only look, but I listen, like you say, and I taste, and I breathe, and I take in, and I connect with, and I feel. And I think that is what we need to do more, to be in kinship and in community is to really feel the place that we are in. Even right now, you say, we're in a forest. We are. All of you are trees and plants and mushrooms. <laughs> we're all in a forest together. And we're breathing the same air in this room. Right now, we're in kinship. But we can only be in kinship if we feel one another and if we open our hearts to feel and truly feel the love that exists in this room and in the forest and in the world that we are in. So I, I feel increasingly, as I become older, maybe not wiser, but just a little bit more experienced, I feel that I read less, I consume less, and I begin beginning to taste more and feel more and listen more, um, which is what my mom has been doing all her life and has been showing and sharing with us. And now I get to share with all of you. <laughs> you know, you spoke about being, not doing. And Sam, you spoke about listening. And you also spoke about listening, Kalyani. And, um, you know, when we think about what can emerge from a space where we've been opened up, it isn't always a, a clear path forward. And it isn't one that is, you know, always easy. And when you work in, in community, and you all work in community in different ways, you're in Ghana, you know, you're in Cambodia, you're here in, you know, in, in, in Sussex with humans and nightingales, um, the, the story that unfolds there is one that's multifaceted. And you know, I wonder if you could all speak a little bit about the importance of listening and learning to listen uncomfortably at times to what comes up, whether from human or more than human voices, how to hold that, because I think that's a big part of a response. We think of action as a doing, but that's a very, you know, masculine, outdated, toxic response in many ways. And part of what is emerging is perhaps as another way of returning to a state of being. Being can hold things and many things, different viewpoints maybe conflicting viewpoints, maybe uncomfortable viewpoints, but it has to start with that space of listening and also the, maybe the vulnerability that one has to be there in that space. So I wonder if you could all speak to that a bit. Yeah, I have so many thoughts on this. This is a really great question. Um, I hope I can be coherent. Um, I think I'll start with kind of what I've been taught around how to do my PhD, because this is something that... Um, I, I'm within a computer science department and computer science is probably one of the least, 
I don't know, doesn't doesn't do things in this way. Everything is sort of planned out and, and there is a route and all Bi- of the knowing. Binary, right? Yeah, binary. binary and, and the route has to be known. And I, I think the, the work that I've been doing has been completely unknown and that things unfold um, because it's so based on community and, and trying to move away from patriarchy and trying to move away from coloniality, which is to say that, of course, I don't know what people's engagement is going to be like or, or what my engagement is going to be like and that I'm not... Sub- I'm not um, I have subjectivity added into that space. And so I think that I think the unknowing is something that systems of power do not like because without knowing you cannot control or you think that you cannot control. And so many ways I've been taught to surrender and that surrender is something that's really powerful. And I think when we're talking about environmental action or environmental solutions, that feels very uncomfortable to say we're going to surrender because people interpret surrender as giving up or as inaction. And one conversation I had with Bioekamalafe was really interesting because we were talking about um, runaway slaves. And we were talking about how, you know, what if you're in a situation where um, you were kind of going to instigate the runaway and you went up to someone and said, should we like go, should we leave, should we run? And that person said, well, we don't have a map and we don't have a compass and we don't have, you know, maybe we should sit down and, and, and make a plan and, and get all of these things that we, we don't know how we're going to get them. And, and someone trying to be very in control of that situation. But the Maroons didn't do that. The Maroons just ran and had the knowledge or the faith that some being, whether that's God, whether that's the forest that they ran into, would guide them without the map, without the blueprint. And that is the kind of surrender that has trust that we are also part of the world, that the, that the world will guide us. And not that we have to exert control out of a place of insecurity, out of a place of not knowing. And rather than kind of fighting against the not knowing, kind of seeing that as an opening to learn, as an opening to hear things that we're not hearing. Because, you know, as, as Sam's saying, as you're saying, when we enter these spaces, there's a lot that comes through, whether you're saying, you know, what are, what are the trees saying? What are the animals saying? What are the people saying? And a lot of people are not being listened to. Um, and, and there's a discrepancy with who gets, who gets to choose what our blueprint is, who gets to choose what our path is. And so who, non-human or human, are we not listening to when we we fail to surrender, when we fail to just have a period of time to be imbued with something else mm. um, than our own kind of imagination, because our imaginations are limited and they need to be expanded. And I think that, that the way we do that is through surrendering. Mm. You're never going to win, so. <laughs> You like a pattern, which is good. Um, I guess maybe the first question I have on this is about what what is what is listening, um, and we. I think we. Uh, I think you're speaking about something more than just how we receive sound vibration. It was wonderful hearing David Haskell talk about sound being quite a late part of. Uh, the evolution of species and you know it was almost it was something very interesting in that in early eras about how actually creating sound was very revealing of your position your vulnerability um and you know several hundred million years later it's, it still rings true um but i'm i think i'm 
there's a sort of other sort of listening, which is this idea of sensory awareness, um, which is such a massive term. And, and I don't just mean the, you know, the five senses, because that's a very kind of modern and limiting uh, division of how we receive and express and and read the world around us. There's many more ways that we do it. Um, the ears are very powerful, um, but there are other senses that are come into play when one is out in in nature. And this is part of the work that I do with nightingales. I you know I obsess about this bird, but really what I love about them is that they capitalize upon a space of 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 really of deep appreciation of that ability to um, listen and experience so much further into the world around and deep within oneself and the space that is created in their presence but just outside at night particularly where the listening goes so far beyond our usual realms of where our sensory perception is allowed to exist you're talking about imagination confinement and also about how we are sensorily confined in the spaces that we occupy when do we get to experience horizons as wide as nature can often create and what happens when we confront that and there's something about that sense of realizing our entrapment um, and also how we are able to listen deeper into ourselves the things and the voices and the ideas and, and emotions that often aren't able to gestate into things that really speak speak forth and um and that's where some of the practices that we have in this land, um, it's an inherited tradition, listening, the wider listening. It's something that you don't just have as capability that's, that's a kind of birthright. It has, to be, it has to be learned. It has to be taught. I speak a lot about the work we need to do with children to use nature as a, as a, as a classroom, as a, as a playground, a place of experiencing. It's, but we have... Um, a very broken legacy in this country of of how we are permitted to listen, how we're permitted to um, have a deeper connection. But we also have the great privilege of having so many other cultures that we can learn from still surviving today, still persisting, who hold very ancient wisdoms and practices of, of nature awareness, um, particularly in North America, particularly in South America, and we live in a time of, of accessibility and uh, teachings that are very available for us to be able to import some of the real graceful ways that we can start to reimagine. Um, uh, I go back to this word, the reciprocity, um, a sense of kinship with the natural world because we're learning how to, to use our ears and our smell particularly and our touch and the work I do with Nightingales brings all that into play because it's a piece of theatre where everyone is permitted to step into um, the guests who come out into the forest, step into a place of of drawing attention to beyond our, our physical realms of how we connect in and the darknesses of I find a wonderful place to to um, to initiate and disinhibit the the things that we. Um, have not been able to uh, to to listen deeper to, I guess. So, thank you, Sam, and thank you for mentioning ancient wisdom. Yeah, and Joycelyn, um, you talk about surrender, 
And both of those things remind me of my family. Um, we went through the Khmer Rouge regime, um, which was which happened during 75 to 79. I was born during that time. And during the Khmer Rouge, uh, we were living under the reign of terror. You know, over two million people died, um, either through execution or starvation. And my family and I managed to um, get to the border of Cambodia and Thailand. Um, and we thought we were in a place of safety at the refugee camp there. And one day, the Thai soldiers came and told us to get on a bus. And they told us they were going to take us to um, the third country where we would be safe. And my father thought, oh, we're going to, you know, <laughs> we're, got, we're, we're going to escape. We're going to be safe. And we got on the bus. My dad thought, you know, why don't we just get rid of our tarp, our pots and pans? My mom said, no, don't do that yet. We don't know where we're going. And instead of turning left, my father could read Thai as well as Khmer and French and English. And he saw that we were not, did not turn left to Bangkok, but we turned right instead. And the bus hours later ended up putting us, dropping us off at the foot of Phnom Dong Rai, which is a mountain laden with landmines. And the Thai government knew this. They knew they were taking us to this place. And they told us to get off. And they told us to go back to our country. And my family and I walked through the jungles, through this mountain laden with landmines, and we had no idea what we were doing. We had to, every step we took, took hours. And there were hundreds of other families doing the same. And there was hardly any water, nothing to drink. Um, and out of the blue, a man came. He was dressed as a soldier, but very, like, he had on this suit. It was beautiful. It was, like, clean, in the jungle, out of nowhere. He had, a, you know, a nice haircut. And he came to our family, and he said to our, my father, you know, follow me. I will show you the way. So we followed him. We surrendered. And he took us to safety. We look back and he disappeared. He was gone. We camped one night with the tarp and the pots and pans that my mom told my dad to keep. <laughs> and we collected rainwater. Um, we slept under the tarp even though it was raining. And my sister, she was only five or six years old at the time. Um, she wandered off looking for water. And she found the spring that was clean. Everywhere else was drenched with blood. And she was, you know, um, oh, she felt a tap on her shoulder and she looked around. And there was an old woman who said to her, Kone, you know, you know, if you see somebody, if somebody taps you on the shoulder and tells you to move away, just move, don't resist. And she looked at that old oh, well, the grandmother, and she said, okay, grandmother, you know. And the grandmother had disappeared after she told my sister this. And so when she saw this clearing of water, and it was clean, my sister was like, 
you know, she wanted to go towards it, and suddenly she felt a tap on her shoulder. The man said, get away, kid, you know, I'm going for this water. And she remembered the word of the grandmother. And so my sister moved aside. The man moved towards the clearing with the water, and boom, he was blown into pieces. And so out of nowhere, grandmother appeared. Out of nowhere, the soldier appeared to guide our family to safety. We surrendered to the spirits. We surrendered to our ancestors. And we surrendered to the plants that helped give us sustenance and food, and the plants that gave us water. Even though we couldn't find water, there were plants that had roots that we could feed on that you know, gave us the liquids, the water that allowed us to survive. And it was through that surrender and through the belief in our ancient wisdom that we were able to survive. Our ancestors are everywhere. The wisdom are within us. The wisdom is everywhere, in the forest with the nightingales. You know, in Ghana, in Cambodia, in our ancestors, in our blood. We just have to listen. And like you say, listening is more than just the five senses. It goes beyond that. There are spirits who are guiding us too. And we keep talking about technology, we keep talking about you know, all these things, and when actually the answers are right there in front of us, we just really need to listen with an open heart. So I want to talk more about surrender. I'm going to abandon this direction. <laughs> it's, a, it's a surrender to the moment. Um, but I think it's a really important point. And, you know, you said, Joycelyn, you know, people think of surrender as defeat. But, you know, in, in many spiritual traditions and religions, it's surrendering to something greater, right? Bowing down, actually act reverence and realizing that you are very small. Um, and I think it's important to maybe bring up this question of who are we surrendering to at this time? And there's many answers to that question. But maybe in the context of how we relate to the living world around us, perhaps we have to maybe even name, you know, perhaps what we're trying to surrender to, maybe this is my personal response, not, not yours, but, you know, is the recognition that we are held within this great being that is our earth, that is our mother. Um, and there needs to be a, a, perhaps a surrendering and recognition of that. Because for me, people always talk about earth and humans, we need to come into balance. I would say no. I would say the balance needs to be askewed with human here and earth here. There is a, you know, there's a huge continuation of a certain arrogance to say we need to bring it back into balance. Maybe the same kind of arrogance that says well, we can have the same lifestyle, but it's going to be a green lifestyle versus a life that's grounded in a space of recognition and surrender that we are held within something much greater than us. So I, I'd love you all to speak a bit more about this because I think you all work with this in very different ways. Maybe it's, you know, implicit rather than explicit, but it's there. You got the mic, Sam, you're gonna go first. <laughs> so, um, there's a lot in there and um, 
I'm 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 kind of going to follow on a little bit because uh, you know I like that this is this is going off the the beaten path here somewhat, um, and and that we are a forest, and I and I also believe that that sense of of spirit um, can exist beyond just the organic realm, the, the natural realm, that it exists in rooms like this and places of gathering, and and humans are an incredible species for manifestors of spirit, and um, what. I experienced, and I think we all experienced just a moment ago, was in the place of story. Mm. Um, and your story was both within your lifetime and also within um, all lifetimes. That, that, that we call it maybe in this tradition, the hero's journey. Mm. And those moments of where wisdom comes to us, where our path is offered, where the choices in the path appear, and how we um, are in a place to... Um, make make the decisions that can have enormous impacts in our lives and the lives around us. Um, and I, I appreciate you saying that balance isn't always a great thing. <laughs> that, that um, And nature um, is a great um, revealer of that, that actually nature, if you go into any really biologically rich places, Urson was talking about it the other day, about being in the rainforest. I know when I'm in primal forest it's a mess <laughs> everything's trying to eat something else you are trying to be eaten <laughs> um and that's balance that's creativity that cannibalism that decay that uh that where one demise is uh, another species um survival it's it's a constant movement and fluidity of uh, of of dependencies um and that is something that is exciting to see as brutal as it can sometimes seem how we find within our own societies um a way of honoring that in as sensitive a way and an inclusive way as possible but stories i think one of the great um keepers of order um, and uh, we are story makers we are storytellers this is a um, an experience of different stories and they are what hold us to account hold us to a place of remembrance and reminder of of how to make better choices um, and how also that you know the skills I've learned as somebody growing up as a kid through inherited stories not dissimilar to yours from Holocaust survivors of how the, the forest was a place of sanctuary, as a place of, um, of resilience as well, and a place for, the, for the, the, the kind of sabotage of fascism came out of the, the partisans who dwelt in the forest. And there's wonderful stories from my ancestors from that during the First World War and also the pogroms of the turn of the last century. And those stories are, uh, for me, were always there to remind me that the the, the land is a, is a place of of refuge, refuge um, and everything that we need is there. And also the teachings of how to procure to live in in uh, a place not of survival. I hate that word survival, but of comfort and uh, and nourishment. It's all there. You just have to understand what where how to listen how to find that that source of water which plant is saying i can help um 
that vulnerability, that sense of seeing where the cracks of opportunity are emerging. Um, we have that within us. Um, and stories are the ones that give us trust. Um, and that's the thing that we don't have very much. We've exiled nature as being a place that we don't trust, we don't understand, the, the plant blindness. The, um, but actually growing that, um, uh, that sense of wonder is super important. Yeah, thank you, Sam. I guess I'll go next. <laughs> you say trust, and it reminds me of a Khmer word, tukjet. And tuk uh, means to place, to keep, and jet means heart. So jet is also, it means heart, but also means mind. So the mind and the heart are one in Khmer, in my language. And so to trust is to place or keep your heart with someone or something. That's trust. I just find that so beautiful. And I think trust is surrender. And I think trust is also, this is something that I've been thinking about and feeling a lot this year, is, is also synchronicity. And being in sync um, being in rhythm with something or someone is also trust and surrender. And I learned recently, um, my mom always told me the story of her carrying me through the jungles laden with landmines. But I, I learned recently how she did it. And this is when you came over to our house in Stockton. <laughs> you know, um, she told me she wrapped a karma like this around her and like this, and then she carried me close to her. And my friend Fran in the back there has been carrying Leo, her baby of three and a half months, like this, the same way, close to her heart. And we've been going all over London together, and Leo has been the quietest baby. I mean, he's simply the most, the sweetest child. And the reason is because he's close to Fran's heart. And I was able to feel my mother's heartbeat. Even though we were walking through jungles laden with landmines, I didn't cry. I didn't stir. I didn't move. I didn't fuss. Because I could feel her heart. And my heartbeat was in sync with hers. And what I learned later on researching on the internet <laughs> was that babies are in sync with their mother's heartbeat in the womb. And even outside the womb, um, the babies can be in sync with their mothers for three months or more. And then partners who are together for the life <laughs> in their lifetime, as they get older, their heartbeats start to synchronize. And I was just like, wow, that's amazing, you know, how we can be in sync with one another. And I see that in nature, you know, the murmurations, the birds flying in sync with each other, or the herds of gazelle, or, you know, animals working in synchronicity, ants. And I think about us. How do we surrender? How do we trust in our ancient wisdom, in ourselves, and in one another? enough to walk this life together. And we can do it. We just need to practice. <laughs>
holding each other and, and, and listening to each other's heartbeat. Thank you. Got the experience of going last, so been listening really intently to what you've both been saying. It's been really lovely. And I think what I've been thinking whilst you've been speaking is how, back to your question around surrender being perceived as an inaction. And I think that it it is an action because surrender is moving away from one thing and towards something else. And again, talking about forests, I mean, I think we all have a kind of connection to forests in one way or the other, but thinking about the forest as a place of refuge and thinking about uh, an enslaved person running away into the forest, a forest that's unknown, and moving away from pain and moving away from suffering, maybe to some more suffering, you know? Maybe you do stumble across a poisoned mushroom. Maybe you do stumble across you know, a carcass being eaten alive, but you also come across beauty and joy. And I think that that's what a complicated wonder of the living world is, is, is not seeing the natural world as this kind of um, passive being that is just supposed to be in service to our need for beauty, but as to more openly understand the kind of unknown and the unknowing and then the learning that comes with that unknowing and I think that for me that's a creative space that's a space of generation and I think that the space that we're in now which doesn't want to surrender is a space of stagnation because we are not open to learning we are not open to experience or to seeing what is hidden and I think that it's surrender is is also uncovering it's kind of moving away from what it is that we know to what it is that we don't know. Um, and in all of its complexity, that is still beautiful and there are lessons to be learned from that. And I think that it doesn't just have to be done in, you know, sort of a forest far away. I think that there are, that we that we must do this kind of as a practice. And I think that goes back again to being rather than doing. It's how do we practice surrender daily and in big ways and in small ways and the more that we surrender, the more that we become educated by the world around us. And I think that that, for me, is what it feels to be human. I think when I feel my most human, it's when I'm my most curious. It's when I'm, I'm the most open to being inspired and asking questions and listening and watching and just going, oh, like, what is going on there? Like, how does that work? Or just knowing that there are intelligences much broader and vaster and intricate than our own and trying to um, kind of blend into that. I kind of describe like trying to just become an amoeba, like just to kind of become nothing but everything at the same time. And I don't know like what that looks like exactly, but just trying to um, be outside of the body or be outside of our physical or emotional or mental constraints and... Um, as an opportunity for learning. Yeah. So I have two, maybe two points that I'm, maybe they're too big to, to bunch together, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because um, that's what I've been hearing in, in, in this last round of, of your sharing here, um, which is one, the cultivation of inner senses. You spoke about outer forms of listening. You know, we hear with our ears, we see with our eyes, we touch with our hands, we smell. You know, but 
What about the inner senses, the cultivation of the heart, mm-hmm. which is what in my own spiritual path, Sufism, is, mm-hmm. is a, given a tremendous emphasis that the external senses are one experience, mm-hmm. uh, uh, one aspect of what the human being is capable of, but the inner cultivation of the heart, so you see with the heart, you hear with the heart, mm-hmm. taste with the heart, everything ultimately in Sufism comes back to the heart, mm-hmm. and to love. But it's not something that's just for Sufis. It's something that we all, I think, need to strive to, to realize that there is an important cultivation of inner senses, which we're, we're part of the education that was offered for millennia, mm-hmm. not so much book learning, mm-hmm. but the cultivation of inner senses and the value of the inner senses on par with the outer. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one part of the question, because I'd like to hear you all speak to that. And the other, I guess, is how that relates to this dichotomy of action versus inaction that is often present in the environmental space, that taking refuge, for instance, and developing your inner senses is considered selfish at a time when we all need to be out there on the picket lines, protesting, chaining ourselves, stopping this incredible extractive industry that is the modern capitalist project. Now, I think that we all need to be doing things in an external capacity. But I'm a huge believer of what can happen through the inner cultivation, which is viewed as inaction. You know, there's a lot of things that can be put in that box. Prayer, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, ceremony. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, silence. Song. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to, love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I think we talked about this a little bit um, earlier in the year. For for your book. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the issues that we face around the environmental movement is that of replicating the systems of oppression that we're trying to eradicate. Mm -hmm. And often in movements, there's urgency, there's fear, And when there is fear and trauma, it feels like the best thing to do is to do. Like, let's just do something. Um, And we do need to do something. But again, it's, I think that to be fully in our humanity is to see that the environmental crises, the climate crises are not just external crises. They're not just crises of carbon. They're not just um, crises of extraction. Because when we look into our history, when we look into our wisdom, we can see where these systems of extraction, systems of exploitation have come from. And they have been human, emotional, bodily um, drivers that have caused these ways of being, these systems of extraction. And so if we continue to act, you know, externally, more than we connect internally. And that can still be done in community, and I think it must be done in community. Mm -hmm. But if we do not give time to grieve, if we do not give time to... I was speaking with a friend earlier about screaming and about (laughs) crying and about release and about connecting to hearts of, of, of... the hearts of each other and the hearts of the living world, then what is the world that we create? What, what, how different will that be? And again, is it going to be the same world but greener? And is that what we're all 
sacrificing so much for? Is that sacrifice necessary to create this world but greener? Or is there an opportunity to make something much more beautiful, much more just, much more inspiring? And I think that in part that that has to be have a balance between the external and the internal. We have to radicalise what's going on externally, but also what's going on internally and what the systems that we live by are, because it's not only new environmental technology, not any new energy systems that we have to create, but we need to create new cultural systems, new systems of belonging, new systems of connection. And those are also infrastructure, Um, wind turbines and solar panels and roads yeah they're important infrastructure but our cultural infrastructure our care infrastructure is equally as important and is the sort of bottom of the iceberg underneath that we all ignore and so if those crumble the whole thing crumbles if our societal infrastructure crumbles we have nothing to um kind of be uplifted by and to stand by and so we have to at the same time as um radically changing the external we need to be creating the foundations and and the kind of um that stable base so that whatever the new world looks like and there'll be many new worlds in many places all at the same time um that that is built on love and that is built on something radically different from the way that our our community and our societies are organized now um so i think those two things are actually one in the same it's like not two questions it's the same because with the love is seeing that there cannot be inaction for honouring love, for honouring our hearts. That is part of the action that, that needs to be taken. And I think we need to move away from binaries because, as you were saying, in the ecosystem is messy, super messy. And in that messy li- lies the beauty. And I think I want to stay in the messy more often than not. <laughs> Hmm. I I keep returning to my mother (laughs) and I keep returning to the families that I live with in Cambodia for many years, you know, living with them, learning about their way of life and um, how they just live, you know, with the land and the forest and the rivers. And we didn't grow up with that in Stockton, California. It was a very urban space. I had nowhere to run to, no, no force to go to. Um, I only had my mother, you know, who shared food with us that gave us a taste of our homeland. Um, but what I learned living with the families was that they were reflecting to me what Matt was sharing with me, what was she was trying so hard to teach us. And not really so hard, she just did it naturally. And that was, yeah, I kept finding myself when I was filming. There was no like moment of grandeur, like no like big plot (laughs) in the films I was making. It was always about household chores. (laughs) You know, like every time I held up the camera, I would be filming, um, you know, the mothers cooking. Um, children playing, uh, them going fishing in the river, um, foraging for mushrooms, um, us having a meal together, and sharing stories at mealtime, laughing, joking around, playing, 
having fun. <laughs> you know, so you talk about the inner, um, you know, cultivating that inner wisdom, the inner spirit. And I think that is it. That's what I learned. Through those household chores, washing dishes, washing clothes, cooking, gathering, foraging, um, nurturing the family and the community, through those daily acts, you didn't have to think about healing. You didn't have to think about cultivating your inner spirit or having a daily practice or praying or everything you did was a prayer. And that's, my, that's what my mother did. You know, she cooked, she cleaned, she cared for us, and that was her daily prayer. And I wonder, I wonder, wonder, wonder if maybe we have gone so far that we have forgotten our daily prayers. You know, those daily household chores that the machines are doing for us. You know, we just drop off our laundry and magically they're clean or put our dishes in the dishwasher and, and then they come out clean, you know. Or we, you know, maybe don't even have time to be with our children because we are working so hard. I wonder if maybe the answer is, or maybe there's no answer, but <laughs> what I've seen in my life is that I was focusing, putting attention, my camera, on these things that I felt was really important. I had no idea why, but... I realized later on that I was really honoring my mother when I did this. You know, and maybe we need to honor our mothers, either our mother, our maternal mother, our grandmothers, or maybe our mother earth, by touching her, holding her, caring for her. And that could be our prayer. Wow, I'm feeling very emotional right now. <laughs> I don't know about you guys. Um, mm, thank you. Um, it comes in the, the privilege we have of all this time that has been given to us through, the, through everything you're saying and actually what have we lost in ways of, of connection, of tradition, of, of um, doing as has been done. Um, my, for me, my, I, what I feel luckiest more than anything else is that I have, I have song. I have songs around me, I have songs in me, and that that is my own personal form of, of prayer, of sharing a song that has been sung by mothers before, and grandmothers and great-grandmothers and goes back. Um, and they carry within them a remembrance of of all that grief and all that, that joy and everything that we have to, to value. And, and also a reminder that, um, that what we are going through as, as we are in the dawning of the, the kind of new era of climate change, of societal, um, whatever the word might be, <laughs> I have to choose them carefully, of whatever the many futures that you speak about are to unfold, um, in many ways, this is not the first time humans have experienced this. Um, and I'm, I'm reminded of the wonderful quote from 
Bertolt Brecht, will there be singing in the dark times? Yes, there will be singing. We will be singing about the dark times. Mm. Um, and song is what holds me in a place of sacredness and rebellion as well, mm -hmm. because just to kind of kind of requote what you were saying, Joycelyn, about about the shutdown, the num the numbing. That for me is the thing that I am terrified of more than anything. Mm. Is that I see the dis the demise. I see the 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 land suffer. I see our communities suffer. And the thing that I fear most of all is that I don't feel it mm. anymore. Mm. Um, and in those places of of uh, of where one wants to shut down, one wants to step away and not engage. Um, I say my songs, the songs that I sing, our songs, uh, be they ancient folk songs or be they songs that are being released right now that are speaking about human condition and world, the world condition are what, um, they are what keep me um, standing upright and eyes open and heart open as well. So they're not the only way that we do it, but they are, for me, the one that speaks deepest to, to my heart and to many people's. And uh, that's my therapy. It's my balm. It's my yeah meditation. Um, and may, may the songs be there that tell the stories that are hardest to, to tell. Hold on to that mic for a second, Sam, because you know what I'm going to ask you next. I think everybody here knows what I'm going to ask you next, which is, you've opened a door. Now you must walk through it, my friend. <laughs> the funny thing is, is that we were doing it in conversation on Sunday, and somebody in the audience said, Sam, could you sing a song? And... You looked at me and was like, no, 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 sorry, move on, next question. <laughs> no, I, I, and you got me out you, of that I know one. you pretty well by now, and there, I think there's a different space that you're in than you were on yeah, Sunday. Thank so. you. Um, I'm going to go into a place of vulnerability and sing a song that I haven't really ever sung before, um, that feels very... Uh, it's been playing around in, in me with this exhibition because there are so many forests in here. Um, and this is a okay. This is a song called um, um, what's it called? <laughs> <laughs> it comes from Herefordshire, and it's. I'll just very briefly say um, a bit about the background. It's a song that much of which I've written out of a very very ancient folk song called um, uh, called the tr the Tree of Life, or it's called the Leaves of Life. The Tree of Life. Um, it comes from an old gypsy singer. Um, called May Bradley, um, and it's it comes from an apocryphal Christian telling of Mary going to Calvary to see her son um, on the crisscross tree, as it was known. Um, and there was something about the line of the seven virgins that accompany her that called to me in the the, the prophecy, the the Cree, the Iroquois prophecy of the seven the children's fire, the seven generations. Some say the seven generations to come, some say the seven generations that have also been, that we must call into their consideration when making choices, decisions, and counsel about what we do. Um, and so that number seven felt very important. And this is taking that song and 
imagining the seven generations of children appearing, who are yet to be appearing at the tree of life, the, the, um, who is broken and wounded and weeping, and the questions they have of how we have come to the place that we are. Um, so this is, this is the leaves of life. It's under the leaves and the leaves of life There comes children seven And it's one by one they'll come to ask what have we done to heaven? And where are the leaves and the leaves of life? Who gave us protection? Who gave root and bough? to raise our vows Why has she been forsaken? Oh mother dear, you're a weeping tree And your weeping it does disarm We've been in trance to a scarcity dance Well awayed by false idolatries Children go where I send thee How can you send thee Far from the leaves of life to tend to our dear mother's grace And be scribed to our father's rage Bright morning star rising Bright morning star rising Bright morning star arising Day is breaking in my soul Thank you. And as much as I want this conversation to go on, I think it should end there because that was a beautiful space to end our conversation on. And I'm really, really grateful to what just happened here because it wasn't what I thought was going to happen. And um, I'm very touched by all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sam, for, for singing. and. And uh, for, uh, for being here at Kalyani, thank you so much. And for your work downstairs. Joycelyn, thank you so much. Thank you.
and it's uh, been a real privilege. Original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our theme music is composed by Logan Stanley and H. Scott Salinas. This podcast is edited by Erica Neininger and produced by Shauna Quinn and Emmanuel Von Lee, with writing by Lucy Wormald. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter, order our new print edition, and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.